There's about literally 50 machine guns going out from our, we were a company strength. And to say terrified is, is an understatement. Hello, this is Kent. And this is Adam. And you are listening to the Be The Bright Side podcast. Yeah, this is where we're sharing uplifting and inspiring experiences from ourselves and others to help you be the bright side in life. So today, um, this evening, we're so excited to have, uh, we're going to have Rick here with us, Rick Adair. Um, This is a good friend of Adam, and he's going to share with us some really interesting things that help us understand recovery um, and uh, post-traumatic stress. And so, uh, Adam, tell us a little bit about your friend, and then tell us uh, what what kind of things we're we're expecting for this evening. Awesome, definitely. Yeah, Rick and I met Uh, It's been four or five years ago through an organization called Toastmasters and uh, quickly became friends. He's just an awesome guy. Very fun to listen to. Very animated. He's got some really funny stories uh, that he's shared within Toastmasters. And uh, one of the things that he did share that's always been impactful to me is his experience with post-traumatic stress. I, I don't have anyone else in my life I've connected to or I'm friends with family with at this point that has it that I know of. And Rick has given me some really great insights into what it is like and his experience with that. And so, Rick, you've been so awesome to join us today Thank to you. talk a little bit about this. I know we're going to cover that. We're going to talk about some some recovery and and addictions that you've gone through as well. And I I am excited to hear from you and learn from you. Okay, so I'm uh, I'm real happy to be here. Happy to meet you, Kent and Adam. It's always a pleasure. Uh, I, I guess my biggest question is, uh, how did, you know, some of the things in your early childhood or even young adulthood lead into your service? And then what changed your life through that service and led you into the path that, I mean, it sounds like the, the things you've explained have led you through kind of some of the rougher parts of things that, that kind of shaped who you are today. Sure. I was uh, born in uh, Santa Monica, California. I grew up in Newport Beach, which was heaven on earth in the 50s on Balboa <laughs> Island. And I just love it. My father is, uh, I well, I have a whole chapter. I just wrote a book called Going To by Helen A. Handbasket. You guys can figure it out. But uh, my father is a, ce- a celebrity. He's in the Songwriting Hall of Fame. He wrote for Frank Sinatra. And when I grew up, he... Uh, he introduced me to Walt Disney. I remember Walt Disney picking me up at, at, and my twin sister at Disneyland. So I grew grew up in that. Davy Crockett came home once for dinner. Fess Parker was the actor, and I was like the whole coonskin cat guy. And so I, I was that. pretty impressed with my father. Now my father was also an alcoholic. He was uh, he eventually got sober for the last twenty years of his life, and he was also a very kind alcoholic. Uh, it doesn't ex- and being an alcoholic. I know alcoholism is alcoholism, but he uh, he was just a very kind, very creative, uh, very, very successful. He wrote television shows in the 60s, about seven sitcoms that anybody over 60 would be familiar with. And he wrote two songs in Sleeping Beauty. And, and I grew up wanting to be an actor and was very much into music at an early age, playing drums. And uh, I just want to give one quick illustration 
Balboa Island, I one time followed my dad out. I was playing spy, and he, there was a party, and I'm pretending I'm five years old, and I followed him. And I, this, like I said, this is paradise, Newport Beach, California. I mean, I knew I had a special life. And then I watched my dad step between two cars and throw up. And I was, that was my introduction to alcoholism. And I didn't know what it was, but I knew at five years old I was ashamed and didn't know why. And so that was introduced right from the beginning. Big part of my life, I fell in love with drums. I had a a friend, and every day I would go over, play his drums for hours and hours in junior high school, and was just obsessed with. It. I started guitar, became a serious guitar. I say I've been playing guitar for sixty. Uh, 57 years but only seriously for 40 and uh, (laughs) so uh, when I joined the army let's move ahead Uh, it's the last thing in my mind I would have ever thought of I was a musician I was very involved in acting uh, and doing two shows a week as as a 14 15 year old I was in a boys home because I was a juvenile delinquent I ran away from home that's that's what made me a juvenile delinquent but if we want to get up to Vietnam I was living, I traded my services as a drummer for a jazz dance class in exchange for a room where I kept my drums. What I wasn't supposed to be doing is sleeping there. And I got caught and I got kicked out. I had nowhere to go. My mother had kicked me out. I didn't want to go home. And I remember my brother, my older brother, he's 80, I'm 71. And he had been in the National Guard. He says, oh, there's a lot of yelling. And I just was out of options. So I said, Man, you know, I'll join the Army and, and, and offer them my jazz percussion skills, right? Well, I went to the recruiter, and much to my surprise, they had just enough, uh, just enough jazz drummers in 1968, and they didn't really need any at that time. So, so I said, "Well, what else?" And keep in mind, my only, the only time I ever, even, I never thought about medicine of any sort. My mother watched Doctor Kildare, my father and Ben Casey, and I only watched it because they watched it. I could care less. I was afraid of doctors and needles, but I was listening. Okay, artillery. Well. That sounds kind of noisy. Infantry, I'm not really into walking that much. And then he got to medical care and treatment. And so I said, well, what's that? And he says, oh, like dental technician, uh, laboratory technician, uh, uh, clinical psychology, and he went, x-ray. And I go, wait, what? Back up. What was that? Clinical psychology. And so he told me what it was. Now, I thought, you know, I was going to be a clinical psychologist. Keep in mind, even though I've been to college for four years, I was a high school dropout at this point. Although another irony I won't get into is I was valedictorian in the 11th, uh, highest in the 11th grade at my dum-dum school at the boys' home where I was at. But I, I don't want to, I don't want to lose, lose track here. But, is that uh, an award? Is yeah. that what that is? Well, I got, yeah, anyway. But I didn't drop out of high school because I was, uh, because I wasn't smart, I was work. I just couldn't afford on a buck twenty-five an hour to uh, to buy to have an apartment in North Hollywood. So I, I did join the army, and only later would find out that I'd actually signed up to be a combat medic. And, uh, and I remember my dad, who was in World War II. What did he do in World War II? Was he a hero? He wrote songs to sell freedom bonds, and, uh, and my dad got his start. <laughs> yeah. He met um, the. You guys might might be too young to remember the. Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey. They were very famous jazz trombone players. My dad met them. And then next thing, my dad's writing for Frank Sinatra back in the 40s. And wow. So, uh, 
so I ended up joining that, and I thought, oh, fine. But he said, Rick, you got to get out of it. You got to get out of it. And but I was into it, and for some reason, I think I always knew. And then, besides, at the end of my training, I went to Germany because I was still seventeen. Five months later, a buddy of mine over in Germany volunteered to go to Vietnam, and I said, Yeah, well, it's getting kind of cold here in Germany. So I said, Yeah, well, let's go to Vietnam. It'll be an adventure. So I get to Vietnam. And uh, heard the area where I was going, i was heavily booby-trapped, not a particularly desirable place. Not that there's any real vacation spots in Vietnam, <laughs> although I guess Saigon or some of the bigger cities were a little more desirable. So I got up there, and I was 18 years old, and I was instantly a ward master because I came over as an E4, specialist fourth class, and everybody else is going home. So I'm a ward master, and... But we supported H Troop 17th Cav, the mechanized infantry unit. We supplied the three medics from 23rd Med out of Chulai. And because I had stupid I hadn't used yet, I volunteered to go out. Now, maybe I would have been sent to go out anyway, but probably not because I was a ward master. But I decided to volunteer. I really wanted to be, you know, do my job as a combat medic. So I went out in the field, medics. As I told you guys, they did three months out of their year because our life expectancy was 14 days. And being that the six medics in the first platoon only, we had three platoons, three, first platoon, the guy replaced was wounded six times, twice by friendly fire, and the five medics was wounded before that. And then as I'll tell what happened to my medic, my replacement, just a moment. I did my three months. Briefly, I'll tell you the night I earned my combat medics badge. The only thing I kept from the Army, I'm sorry for all the patriotic souls. I, I, I don't feel this any way, but anymore, but back then I was normal. I hated the Army. Let's face it, we all did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, right, right. Uh, it was, they were there to make yeah. us miserable. And being in the rice paddies and being shot at and being terrified. One night, uh, the so only that was thing a I, little bit different than Newport then. Is a what little bit saying. different than Newport <laughs> Beach, you know. And a lot was, different than Germany. No, a lot different Germany. It was really beautiful in um, in Vietnam, but Newport Beach, I never once had a rocket propelled grenade fired at me. So we're out in the right. I'm bouncing around, ex surfer from Southern California, bebopping around, having a great time. Uh, and uh, my LT. And Frank Figueroa quickly became good friends. I, uh, I, I was not what was known as a blank NG, a blanking new guy, because most because I was doc. You're instantly doc, and it was wonderful because you carry the morphine, and so they're going to be nice to you regardless <laughs> of how big a jerk you are. <laughs> but, uh, so, so I was doc. They treated me well. Frank became my best friend. He sat on the machine gun next to me. I sat on the machine gun on the right. LT was our lieutenant, first platoon leader, the medic rise of the platoon. Uh, my combat medics badge, which is the only thing uh, that my friend Adam has seen many a times on a hat I wear, is the only thing that you that nobody can take away from me. Other than that, my entire career in the Army, I... Well, I, I, let's just say I don't care about medals. I don't. I don't even like the word hero because I think it cleans up a war that I don't want to be glorified. Or, but this night I'm avoiding. Uh, I, we got uh, RPG. A lot of you people know it's a rocket-propelled grenade. You've seen them in movies. It's that thing held on your shoulder. It used to be called a bazooka for the American guys. <laughs> and uh, so one night we took a direct hit 
it was aimed at my track, went across the perimeter, and for the first time, I was always Doc, you know, my buddy Frank, hey Doc, hey Doc, LT, hey Doc, everybody, you know, pass out pills, malaria pills, hey Doc. All of a sudden, it changes. The explosion, they got a direct hit on the track, uh, five guys wounded, my patient was mortally wounded, and Frank is in the back door, I'm inside the track, and he screams medic at the top of his lung, medic, and I am grab my aid bag, I run across the rice paddy, now the rice paddy is mud, because with the tracks, we drive in through it, so it's not like you might imagine a rice paddy, it's mud, I fall down, yeah. and oh dear God, please don't let me die, dear God, please don't let me die, dear God, please, and you know, there's about literally 50 machine guns going out from our we were a company strength and to say terrified is is an understatement i was 18 years old i'm running across a rice paddy they point to a guy i crawl over there i'm right in the middle between two tracks so i have no cover at all and uh and my first and i looked at him and he had uh he was standing right where the rocket came through the track and out the side and he took the brunt of it and uh, without getting too graphic about a third of his face was gone and he had half dollar size wounds over his entire chest and entire body and I remember screaming to a guy we have to get him behind a track which doesn't really help because the fire was coming from came from that way although let me be perfectly honest when they shoot an RPG and they get a direct hit they're not doing they're running probably because we have way too much firepower for them to deal with yeah. so I never saw any bullets around me but I'm hearing machine guns and I'm terrified and I'm looking at a guy that's gurgling blood and my job is to try and save his life now let me this is important to the story later on if this happened on a surgeon's table with the best surgeons in the world they could not have saved this young man's life but I used up my entire bag my extra bags of bandages on this guy and literally 20 years felt guilty I should have done more so I did it we the chopper came in uh, I I was putting a big trauma dressing on his chest we had four other guys wounded they all live and the third platoon medic was up about to says oh don't worry about that don't worry so I didn't when the dust off, the, the medevac chopper flew in right above my head. This blew off, exposing all these wounds. Well, he was probably dead by now. He wasn't one of my guys, so I literally never knew. He was a grunt, an infantryman that just was hanging out with us. They used to get a ride with us to another part of their area of operation. So flew out. I go back. Second platoon lieutenant saw me put my bag together, and he looked at me, and he said, first time, Doc? And I said, yeah. He said, good job. And as I say in my book, not to plug it too often, but mm -hmm. <laughs> I said it literally 20 years later, at least 25, I believed him. I did do a good job. I, I, I did, I had, my priorities were horrible, but cause I bandaged his leg when I should have been managing a mount airway, which is a paramedic I could have managed, but I didn't have a suction machine. I didn't have endotracheal tubes. Yeah. I couldn't do anything, but. I showed up, I did my job, and it, and when LT, I got back to my track, Lieutenant Roberts, John Roberts, he says, hey, re, hey, Doc, you got your CMB, and my response was, you can keep it, but it sounded more like this, you, I was stuttering, I was so terrified, I was stuttering, that night, I was, well, I was on guard duty. We, anytime we got hit, we did double guard. So Frank was with me. He was my best friend. And I'm telling him, I said, Frank, I don't, I don't know if I can do this. If we get hit again, I think I'm going to 
panic. I don't know if I can do it. And Frank looked at me like I was stupid, maybe. He was good. And he just said, Doc, we're all scared. <laughs> and that, which everybody would know, but I had this feeling that being a medic, uh, that I had, that I was had somehow to be... more terrifying or somehow different than what everybody else was experiencing. Well, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, like Frank and them, they were behind their their sixty and LT is fifty caliber machine gun, shooting a little while and it's over. For me, I got my face and a guy who's got his face blown off, and trying to save his life and not being successful, but <clears throat> and not to minimize the terror they go through, but. Uh, I thought that a medic should never show their fear. We should be above it, which is absurd, but I'm 18 years old. I don't get it. And of course I'm terrified, but that got me through the night. He says, doc, we're all scared. I got through the night. And then the next time we hit a booby trap, the next firefight, which with Americans, by the way, great story there. Uh, And I was very close to another mine that went off right in front of me. I made it through and I, Made it back to 23rd Med after my third month. I can't explain the two story. This whole story is too long. But I'd been out of the. I'd been back in 23rd Med for five days, and H. Elsie uh, uh, Bayonet. Uh, uh, it's funny. I want to say this. By the way, in my first book, Staying Sober, I actually made a mistake and called it Elsie Gator, which was the Elsie next to ours. And I always live in fear. Someone's going to say, "Oh, you're lying about Vietnam." You're like, no, I made a mistake. I was, <laughs> I've been to Elsie Gator, but Elsie Bayonet was the one I was at. And, and to give you an idea, for 30 years, I thought uh, Da Nang was south of me. 30 years, and I went to R and R in Da Nang. I mean, I'd fly out, and it was actually north of me. So anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> But I went back to visit the troop and to visit Frederick Leopold. He was my replacement. He looked about 15 years old. I just found out actually the other day that he was like just only about seven months younger than I was. He was my replacement. I will tell, I don't want to tell the story because of time limitations, but I had volunteered to do another three months for a number of reasons. Number one, I can't describe, even though I was terrified, even though I was stuttered, I can't tell you what it's like to be a teenager that's for H Troop 17th Cav, 1st Platoon, 198th Infantry, AmeriCal Division. That's a heady stuff for an 18-year-old kid. I'm Doc. I'm Doc. I'm treated with respect. I'm also terrified and, you know, but and yeah. part of the reason I volunteered was because of the, the, the I could have done better. I could have done more. LT literally saved my life. I won't tell you the story. But the very day I volunteered, the most horrifying thing that ever happened in Vietnam happened that night. LT said, Rick, he said, no, he said, Doc, if you don't have to put up with this blank, the real words in my book, never mind. (laughs) Uh, The only swear word in the entire book, one word, and it's not a horrible one. Uh, And he said, Doc, if you don't have to put up with this, uh, I would go back to Chulai, which I did. So Frederick Leopold literally was there in my place. I go out to LZ Bayonet. I took a a Jeep. It was fairly safe to drive the five clicks, three miles between the two places. I pulled up to my old hooch at LZ Bayonet, and my best friend Frank comes running out of the hooch, slamming the door. He's got a couple Polaroid. He goes, Doc, I'm a papa. I'm a papa. Okay, I got to say it. It's one of the names of my chapters in Helen. Helen, but uh, Doc, I'm a papa. I'm a papa. He just had a baby named Michael who I literally got an email from yesterday. He's nine days old. This is 1970. And 
he's he's a dad. He for first time, you know, first time he's just bound, and and Frank was like this stoic, quiet guy. He's bouncing off the walls and hey, Doc, I'm a papa, oh, man. He's so excited, and that's great, Frank. Man, that's great. He's a cute little boy. And we then we go to LT's hooch. He was about four days from going to Honolulu, where his wife Karen and his daughter Paige. Who, who was eight months old at that time. He was going to meet him in Honolulu in four days, five days. I literally got a email from Paige today because they just, they're in this, this book we're talking about, trying to avoid, desperately avoid talking about. So I, they were happy, bouncing off the wall, uh, and they told me that uh, uh, Leopold had been out the bush for three days. Didn't see anything. He was fine. You know, he still looked like a, a, a junior high schooler. So they, so I said goodbye, and it just couldn't have been happier. I'd never see him so happy. None of the the nom jargon, just just talking about kids and how wonderful it was. The next morning, I was in a friend's hooch, and the uh, the orderly room guy came in and says, "Hey, did you hear? Uh, did you hear Leopold got killed?" And I go charging out. You know, tears. Please God, please God, let them be all right. Please God, please God, let them be all right. And I called, and they had hit a thousand-pound command detonated bomb. Now, to give you put that in perspective, the smallest mines we hit, which was a one-five-five, that's a two hundred and fifty-pound bomb. I literally, and unlike kids, I literally know what the world literally means. I literally, <laughs> I literally thought the world had come to an end. I mean, the concussion blew my driver's helmet right off his head. And it didn't kill anybody, but it killed my entire crew, my entire 1,000-pound that blows 20 tons. And the first name was Frank Figueroa, then L.T. Roberts, then Leopold, and then um, Wagner. He was a new guy. I didn't know him very well. Nice kid. And and, uh, this is where the PTS really began. Is this uh, is this one of those triggers? Would you describe it as almost like a survivor's guilt? Oh, it, I was. I mean, because this the, is your whole team, and my your whole people, crew, and I'm the medic. And you're, and in, I was, you're in July. I was supposed to be there. Right. I was literally. If I had, if LT hadn't said that, I wouldn't have had the courage. I would have been embarrassed. But it had, and my first sergeant was said, "Nah, it's too late." But it hadn't even been 24 hours, so they let me come in. So Frederick Leopold literally died in my place and I don't want to make any uh, juxtaposition to my savior because there's obviously no comparison and yet there is in my mind he the Lord died for us all he literally died for me he took your literal position yeah and I didn't know what survival guilt is but it was something that would uh, it was the biggest the biggest element of post-traumatic stress to me because number one I, when I looked at what I did, I never felt like I, I always said could have been better. I could have done something better. Oh, I should have done this. I should have done that. I look back at it now and I don't believe in, I know there is a such thing as a good pride, but I don't even believe in good. I look back now and I'm happy. I, I showed up. I didn't wet myself, which <laughs> many people did. And I wouldn't be ashamed if I did. And if, if I curled up in the fetal position and couldn't have done anything, or if I saw somebody do that, I would not judge them because that's a perfectly normal reaction. It was only through the grace of God. And for me, running across a rice paddy, doing my job was less frightening than just freezing, you know, and being terrified, you know, even more terrified. 
So I got heavy, heavy, heavy into drugs. I was already using drugs in Germany, smoking hash. Now I'm using LSD, mostly smoking pot every night. All of us, my friends, it's all we did. Docs out of the field got to work in the tower, which was a real privilege. They, it's funny. They thought, well, docs and who've been in the bush had this, uh, you know, their combat, so they'll protect us. I think most of the lifers knew. The lifers are career guys. They knew that it was a party house. All we were up doing up there is firing off flares and getting high every night. And then towards the end, it was LSD. And at the very end, my best friend back at L23 Med was a kid named Steve Broom. And he told me the horrors of heroin. He'd, he was arrested for heroin. That's how come he was in the army. Never had to go out to the bush. And one day I caught him shooting heroin in a bunker and I started harassing him. You told me, man, you could, we're like, we're hippies. We're, we take acid. We believed in LSD. And I do not believe in it. I do not promote it at all. I've been, I got sober in 1986, but I said, um, I finally got tired. Uh, of, I mean, he was getting tired of me and I really did not want to give up on my friend. And so a, this is literally a strategy to get him off of shooting heroin, which, by the way, the heroin over there was as pure as heroin got. It was called China White and it was dirt cheap. And I said, OK, Steve, why I want to try it, thinking he'd say, oh, man, no. And he did. He tried to stop me. He said, oh, no, you don't want to do it. Come on, you man. No, man, I want to try it, you know, thinking he wouldn't would stop. Well, it didn't. And plus, at the end, I was curious. Plus, I wasn't afraid of needles because that's how you learn to give shots and start IVs in medic schools. You stick each other with needles. Yeah. So uh, as when I tell people about not using heroin, this is what I tell them. I said, don't try it because you'll like it. And I, that's what happened to me. I liked it. And and uh, my last three months, I, I didn't get strung out on it, but I was using it regularly. I came back immediately got hepatitis back in Hollywood, Vietnam. We never had to worry about that because we had clean syringes or medics, but I shared a needle with a buddy of mine back in, back in North Hollywood and uh, got hepatitis, which saved my life again. During my guilt, I'd volunteered to go back to Vietnam to fly dust off. Your life expectancy in that is, I mean, you're always, think about it. You're flying into hot LZs, right? Hot LZ meaning fire is still going on. You have a big red cross and that's a target. In Vietnam, if they killed me and got my medic bag, uh, uh, an NVA soldier could, would get a month's pay as a, as a bonus, unlike other wars where they supposedly didn't shoot medics. We were a target. That's so, crazy. Uh, so anyway, a hepatitis, I got hepatitis literally 24 hours before I was to get on the plane to go back to Vietnam, and um, it saved my life. I I got off, uh, through the grace of God, I got off of hard drugs right after that. My, my, my cure might be a little controversial. It was a pound of marijuana. And so I was smoking pot. To me, that wasn't even a drug. It was a kiddie drug. So my, obviously my alcohol, then I found drinking and drinking, drinking is what took me to my knees. It wasn't heroin. It wasn't pot. It wasn't LSD or any of the other. I speed. I, I did every drug. I was called like a garbage head. 1986, I came to my knees. I, I was, as they say in AA, I very much hit bottom. The only thing that seemed worse than my life as it was, my bottom was, I'm watching Wheel of Fortune because I'm smarter than the contestant. I've got my bong full of dope. I've got my glass of scotch. And I literally one night for that long pictured a chain going around my neck. 
this was my life. I wasn't going to be a famous guitar player. I wasn't going to be a anything. This was my life. So I went into Alcoholics Anonymous, which I knew a lot about because I was in Alateen as a kid. And I thought, oh, they're going to, I'm going to be like a superstar. I read the big book when I was 15, right? So, oh, they're going to, and imagine they didn't bow down to me. And, and uh, But anyway, I was arrogant, like a typical alcoholic, but I kept going and I kept going because I knew if I wouldn't, I would die and I would die. And the key to it all was my second year, uh, I started, I'd never had problems with nightmare. The drugs worked until they didn't, you know, yeah. they didn't, uh, the alcohol, it took me to my bottom. I was at a dead end. I always worked, always had a job. All those years I was a full-time paramedic and yes I got high on the job very rarely though not there's no excuse but probably one of the things that kept me sane is I worked so many hours as a paramedic where I didn't get high that it got me through all those years but I was definitely full-blown alcoholic and the second year I had a nightmare they were every single night and one night I had a dream I tripped a wire I felt the blast I'm on the ground I'm dead and I'm at perfect peace perfect peace and like that I woke up and I was mad I was mad because I was at peace I finally had these nightmares and I laid there and I said God I did not get sober for this and I was praying but now I was praying and I'm praying and from that moment on in my second year of sobriety the nightmares started they became manageable you know they became and and then I just started I realized that even though these steps seem stupid, a moral inventory, I'm a good guy. Why do I got to take a moral inventory? And uh, I ended up taking a moral inventory, came very close to relapse at one point. And guess what I found out? Yeah, I was a very good guy when I wasn't being a selfish jerk, which was about <laughs> 90% of the time. Yeah. So if you, uh, so that's literally saved my life. I've been married four times. Uh, and, and God has forgiven me. I'm never glib about that. I've been with my wife, Debbie, for, uh, we just celebrated 14 years together. And a big, big part of my story is I, 20 years, I was sober, uh, nonstop, and I was very active in AA for 20 years. I'm talking, you know, three meetings a week and for almost 20 years. And yeah, not almost, I got my 20 deer medallion. During my third divorce, it was right after we had returned from China with our daughter. I was a stay-at-home dad. I was, I was, you know, I have three other kids. One of them doesn't talk to me. Two of them don't talk. And this was a do-over with my daughter, Sophie. And I was stay-at-home dad, first steps, first forts with blankets and chairs, uh, Barbie movies. And, and I was sponsoring three guys. We got to, my wife divorced me. And I relapsed. I just, I was devastated. How, Lord, how can you do this? I've been sober eight years, whatever it was at that time. And through the grace of God, I, first of all, I didn't even stop praying while I was getting high. And I, I just, uh, I, I knew in, in AA, in the big book, they have a term called the bondage of self, which perfectly describes me you know, alcoholic. <laughs> I was in the bondage of self and it was a dead end. And I finally realized, I'll just finish this up real quick. Cause so I got sober after a summer of drinking and, and, uh, I will say I bought some crack. I'd never done, done a lot of cocaine, but never did crack. It wasn't available. And I bought some heroin and I was 
ripped off. I spent $250. There was no heroin. There was no crack. I didn't even get mad at the kid who sold. He he was a go-between drug dealer. I didn't even get mad at him. At first, I was irritated, of course. But I realized, without question, it was absolutely a gift from God. And I, I never did heroin. I never did crack. It was a gift from God. And from there, the only thing I will say is that uh, in a few years after that, I started having some big problems with with post-traumatic stress. It's not a disorder to me for reasons I'm not going to get into because it's a gift from God. With the, 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 the alertness you get out in the rice paddies, you're a different person. You start to scan the hedgerows and, yeah. and it keeps you alive. The problem comes when it won't turn off, which it wouldn't turn off and, and still hasn't to this day with noises and stuff. So uh, anyway, I talked my wife, I started experimenting a little with pot and then I, Debbie was totally against it. I said, Dad, promise, one joint is all... And remember, I've been sober 20 years. I'd written a book called Staying Sober in AA when surrounded by drunk. Yeah. And so I knew it was a bad idea, but I was getting desperate. I started growing pot. And instead of a joint a day, I'm now vaping, the most potent THC wax and dabbing and all that stuff you do. And that the reason that's important is because six years ago, I was in Northwood, New Hampshire at a campground where we, we camped there, but we were renting a cabin there for this. And the Lord brought me to my knees. I was having a tape loop of holding a gun to my head. And all I could see is me pulling the trigger. I want, I was terrified. And I spent an hour, two hours sobbing, talking to my, Jesus Christ was already my savior, but he was my savior at 12 at 86 my God was just God. You know, the only God I knew, but I wasn't reading the Bible. And had I, maybe this wouldn't have happened. But um, I just, I just remembered every sin that I could ever remember committing, whether it was stealing a pack of gum, I was confessing to my Lord on the ground. And my wife was gone in the fetal position thinking I'm going to die. I'm going to kill. I don't know what's happening to me. It was I only had one experience worse than that, but very similar. And and about two hours, I I don't talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. I mean, theology, it's, it's a difficult topic at best. But I only have had this one experience in my life where I believe that I felt the Holy Spirit enter my body. And it was only this one time. And whatever it was, I literally felt a calm that was like rising up from my extremities into my chest now it was like a now it only lasted maybe minutes i don't know and it was actually for three days i was shaking but i knew the lord had saved me i knew that i was going to be okay no matter how i said deb find me a church a small church i don't want a loud rock band i want to study (laughs) the scriptures she found a crossroad bible church in candia new hampshire near uh and we started going there and i was going eight hours a week eight Bible study class, two hours, because I studied Gnosis for 12 years, uh, which is a whole other story. And uh, uh, and I, I went to two services on Sunday, a Sunday, Wednesday service, a Bible class. So literally eight hours a week, I dove into scripture. I read the New Testament over and over and over. And I read the Old Testament. It took me four years. I'm not bragging about that, but I did I mean, read it. But It, it took, does take that long. Yeah, it did take me. So there I am. Like I said, I'm a Gabby guy. Uh, and that's, 
I am here today. The main thing is I am here through the grace of God. And that is the bright side. There is no other bright side is if, if because I believe in Jesus Christ, because my only desire in life is to be an instrument of God's will, I can't be anywhere but the bright side. Because even if it's tribulation, even if I'm bearing my cross, I'm doing it for the Lord. And I know that, and this I know from experience, grace is around the corner. If I'm having a horrible time, I struggle with, I I have to wear earphones all the time now and earplugs because I'm so, it's called hyper arousal and uh, it's so severe, but Paul had a thorn in his side and that God's grace was enough for him. And I have a wonderful life. I love Cedar City. I have wonderful friends. I love my friend Adam and and we go to Toastmasters. I was just in a speech contest. We had a wonderful, wonderful time. My wife is a professional speaker and she's does it has a job that she loves happening. So I'm just very grateful to be here. I only mostly just pray for the well-being of others and please dear god give me strength and guidance and how do i die to self how do i esteem my friend adam and my friend kent more than i do myself well one way i could do that right now is by shutting up so i'll do that (laughs) (laughs) no that is wonderful man it's just i could i we could probably sit here for hours and talk about all sorts of things i've got notes that i would love to address i was just wondering uh, interesting enough a lot of times you're referring to post-traumatic stress as a gift and you referred to it as as a gift as uh, i guess how do you go from post-traumatic stress becoming a stifling thing in your life Mm -hmm. and in many people's life even today whether through combat or other experiences how how do you overcome that hurdle of this is no longer the obstacle it's actually uh, how do you overcome that mindset and see it as the gift that it is and and turn it into uh like what you said the bright side how do you turn it into a tool an opportunity to grow and learn and 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 make something of it well let me make clear the when i say it's a gift i'm instantly referring to bebop and surfer boy and the rice patties i now am uh, i'm hyper alert and that can save your life you can see a tripwire so and that's what post-traumatic stress is it's that hyper alertness that doesn't get turned on off and now i try to relate it because i know if you're in a bad traffic accident you know, women that have been sexually assaulted. I mean, there's any number of reasons. And, and I was, uh, I think many, when I, all the years I was a paramedic, you don't talk about these things. Post-traumatic stress wasn't even invented when I got out of the <laughs> army. You know, it was called battle fatigue or something. And, yeah. and as George Patton did in the movie, a kid had post-traumatic stress and he slapped him in the face because he was basically a coward. That's the way it was thought of in World War Two. It's, uh, the reason it younger vets have more problems with it if you go in the army maybe you're 23 or 5 you might have if you're more emotionally mature it might be a thing it's but after that whether it's from a car wreck like i was telling these guys i had a a patient with a bayonet through his heart and it wasn't vietnam it was el monte california (laughs) i've seen much much worse uh worse things as a paramedic i mean i was a paramedic full-time real full-time you have no idea how (laughs) full-time my regular shift was 72 hours but uh for uh, how much i saw is just unbelievable and yet 
none of that really it didn't help the post traumatic stress but i don't have i don't have dreams about that kind of stuff so 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 the 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 only solution i know of is through the grace of god now in aa they talk about a higher power and whatever that my, my higher power is Jesus Christ. And I used to cringe when AA members would say that, you know, oh, you're going to scare people away. And, and I don't really care. I believed if you're a Buddhist and you have uh, post-traumatic stress uh, or a Taoist or into Shinto, or whatever, 12 major religions, if you have a relationship with God, uh, don't let me define God for you. If you turn to that divinity let's just call it divinity i believe that divinity will hear your prayers no matter what if you they the lord cured my restless leg syndrome which it sounds silly it's debilitating i i was on uh, opioids 20 years straight because this of this condition he cured them how long did i pray six years am i an idiot no in his time, he cured me. Am I complaining that he took six years? To, no, I'm not. <laughs> so my suggestion is no matter what it is, you don't um, – and the, and the truth is my combat is compared to – I mean compared to a guy who was in you know, maybe this, this Da Nang for a year and saw a couple rock attacks, it's bad. But my experience was somewhere in the middle. Some guys had much worse, and, they, and that's why 22 vets every day kill themselves. It just – I would eat. I would I would have been one of those guys if not through the grace of God and also not through the fact that I'm a musician or writer because creativity it enhances my relationship with God. God wants me to be creative. He wants you to be creative. He wants you to write a poem. He wants you to play a guitar. He wants you to sit in front of a sunset and realize that's what God does. And so my... The simplest solution I would have is if you can get involved with a 12-step program, uh, I think the reason I wrote the book is because so many meetings were so bad. So it depends on where you're at. It's a 12-step <laughs> program. Work the 12 steps. If you find yourself in meetings and all they're doing is telling war stories or talking about the 12 step, if you go there, what does it mean to uh, – we became – uh, uh, I'm going to try and impress you. I'm not going to go through all 12, but, you know, step 11, uh, we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood God, praying only for knowledge of his will and the power to carry that out. Step 12 says, and listen to this carefully, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and practice these principles and all our affairs it says having had it doesn't say if you're an upper middle class white guy executive it says having had if you're an alcoholic if you have post-traumatic stress if you're a drug addict if you have if you're a human being who's an unworthy sinner and your sins catching up to you realize you're powerless over that sin realize you're powerless over post-traumatic stress and don't get caught up in defining it or how bad it is Know that the the third step is we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Uh, and that's it. Step two is came to believe that a power greater than myself. Who is that for you? For me, it's God. Whatever deity you can find, if it's more powerful than you, that is step two says having uh, came to believe that that 
God, that power can change your life. And then what you do, the 12 steps, you take an inventory, you, you look at yourself, you look at yourself honestly, and it's difficult. And you, you, you share it with God, you share it with a living human being, uh, which is difficult. Yes, you share exactly what your defects are. And then you go on and you ask God to remove these defects of characters, call them sins, call them egos, whatever they are, they're what give us that that lock us into the bondage of self and you go through this process and you're and you end at nine you make amends you know i i stole a hundred bucks from a boss who is a multi-millionaire and eight years sober i realized wait a second the point wasn't that he was a millionaire the point was that i was a thief yeah and so eight years sober i returned the the uh the hundred dollars to him with the letter and being that I didn't have that much humility, I thought of myself as a modern folklore hero for returning the money I stole. But the point, so you make amends, you get right with your life. And then 10, 11, 12, every day you take an inventory. What did I do today? Was I mean to my friend? Was I rude to, to this people? And look at it. And if you have to apologize, apologize. And then the rest you pray. I highly could not recommend meditation. David in the Bible talks about it. It's mentioned several times, um, even though translations will change the Greek word mulatto into uh, think. The word is meditate. It's a wonderful practice. It, it will it will benefit you like you can't imagine. And, uh, and then the very end, the very essence of our lives is service serve others what can you do if you can help an alcoholic if you're an alcoholic or you have post-traumatic stress because you've been sexually you have a you you are uniquely gifted to help somebody else that's been through that but you know what i used to pick up trash in a parking lot and i'd look around gee nobody saw me but in my (laughs) mind i'm a modern folklore hero right now I pick up a piece of trash because there's a a piece of trash that needs to be picked up. And I put it on. I don't think, oh, I'm getting, uh, you know, uh, uh, points to get into heaven. The attention. Just just be of service. Do what you can do. And I say I will stand by that. It's a virtual guarantee of serenity. I used to think serenity was boredom. I truly believe that. I'll use the word happiness. And to me, serenity is happy. I would rather experience serenity than joy because joy is wonderful. I love it when it happens, but I'd rather, I, serenity is sustainable. Serenity, we can be at peace. Just serve others and, and pray. And that's the best advice I have. Other than that, the last verse I will mention is, uh, speak, uh, the verse written just for me is, uh, what is it? What is it? Speak. Uh, be quick. Oh, be quick to listen, slow to speak. Yay, <laughs> folks! I'm well, having it tattooed on my forehead. Yeah. Well, I, it sure is an awesome journey that you're sharing with us, and really appreciating the story and what what you have experienced. I don't, I've probably got three or four questions. We may not even have enough time for three or four questions, but. Yeah. Um, I'm going to kind of combine two of these questions together. One of them is you talked about use of drugs. I'm assuming as a big coping mechanism for post-traumatic stress to some extent. Obviously, there's other things that play in that too, but were there other... It's the coping mechanism, trust <laughs> yeah, me. Yeah, I'm sure. There are others, but... Yeah. So what are maybe some other 
coping mechanisms that you tried that didn't help, that didn't work, but you tried. And also having a support person, what are some things on the opposite side that a support person could do that actually do help and maybe support someone going through post-traumatic stress? That's a really good question. It has different levels. The first thing with me, a, a typical people with post-traumatic stress, we're loners. A lot of us are loners. I, you know, if, if you got a bag of pot you'll share with me, come on over. But, but otherwise, that's, that's, it's a very isolating experience, isn't yeah, it? You want to be alone and you, and you don't want to go out because you don't want, you don't want triggers in that. But, yeah. but I will go back to, during all this time, I never stopped playing guitar. Guitar is a huge part of my existence. And I only, I have a, I have a YouTube channel and people are listening to me play guitar all over the world. Is it viral? Not even close, but they're listening <laughs> to me all over the world, thousands of people. And the only reason I play is to glorify God. Now before, and I only ever played, I never wanted to play to get girls like so many guys do. Uh, although, you know, as young and single, that might not be a horrible side effect, but, uh, <laughs> but no, I play to glorify God, because uh, yeah, I, that's a whole other story. But creativity, no matter what state you're in, right? If you're depressed, and trust me, I know depression. I've lived it. It's right about it. Maybe um, I, I'm not. A, I'm not really big on a lot of psycho babble stuff like journaling. But that's actually a, a good suggestion. You know, write about the problems. You know, other people may want to hear it. Join, join. Uh, if you can, you know, join a, a, a support group. Now, the other side of this coin I, I instantly thought of is many wives came to me over the years about their alcoholic husbands yeah. uh, asking for advice. And the advice that I would give them uh, that was very hard to give, but it was good advice. I would say when he wakes up, you know, when he uh, can't go to work, don't call in sick for him. If he wakes up in his own vomit, don't clean it up for him. And I'm talking about enabling, you know, uh, now this is, I know we're kind of, going off into different things. So I'm, I'm not sure if that's what you're looking for because that wouldn't, that wouldn't pertain to somebody with post-traumatic stress. But, but if you want to help somebody, uh, listen to them. You know, I mean, a lot of, everybody says Vietnam vets. I always wanted to talk about my experience, very rare, because I had close friends who died. I wanted my best friend from sixth grade. We got saved together at 12. When I came back, um, we were camping right after Vietnam and I was going to tell him about Frank, you know, and this is a guy I smoked pot with and LT saved my life. And I started to tell him the story and he says, he says, I just, just want you to know, Rick, that just cause you went off to war doesn't make you more of a man. And as I say in my book, I says, yeah, well, it doesn't make me any more of a jerk either. <laughs> and, and, and you know what, if, if this Paul, dear friend of mine, dear friend, we, he taught me how to ride dirt bikes, you know, and uh, taught me well. And uh, if he had listened within 30 seconds, I would be talking about how I was stuttering. I wasn't going to tell him a war story, you know, or anything like, like that. But I also get it because I would have been a, I was a war protester. I protested the war after I came back, you know. <laughs> and so, uh, but getting back to the, the question is, uh, I wouldn't say force somebody to talk about it. I mean, certainly if you have a similar experience, I would, and, and, and you, Adam, know about, because of your experience, uh, um, uh, with, with, um, Sam, right? Mm -hmm. With Sam. And so you can relate to it. If they've had that experience, of course you would want them to talk to you. And of course, I don't know that particular experience, but yes, 
talk to them. And, and if you haven't had the experience, just just be a friend, you know, be willing to listen. You know, when I gave out phone numbers in AA, I would, to a newcomer, I'd write it down and underneath it, I would write down any time and underline it. And I would tell them, I said, some of the worst times as an alcoholic is three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And if you need to call me, wake me up, you know, it may take me a minute. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, just, just, uh, First of all, look, I can't emphasize prayer enough because God, I will die by this, will answer your prayer, especially if you're not selfish, if you just want to get well so that you can be a better wife, to be a better husband or to be a better father. I guarantee that God will be there, that God will show up and will bring that person to you. And if you, uh, so does that answer your question? That's, that's really good. I've got a question for you. This one, this one, uh, I, I find some people, they feel that, uh, going through the 12 steps or dealing with, uh, certain challenges like PTS, uh, they feel like through therapy and other means it, they can just remove the challenge. Um, this is how many years since Vietnam? Can I ask? Uh, 52. So we've got 52 years since Vietnam. To this day, are you still, uh, do you still deal with triggers? Do you still uh, fight against, you know, your demons, as some people like to describe it? Are there still things that still happen in your life that are more manageable now, but is it still a persistent issue throughout your life that, that shapes things that happen in your everyday experience? I used there used to be a show before, probably before you guys' times uh, called South China Beach. It was about uh, nurses in Vietnam, and I every week I would sit by myself in front of the TV, watch it, and cry, right? And and eventually I, I said, why am I, I? I didn't know why. Why am I doing? I'm crying. I'm going back, and and I finally said, I finally stopped watching it. And I, but I, but I was learning something about myself. What, what, why am I crying? You know, and what, you know, why, you know, uh, I struggled with questions. I'm, I'm truly blessed in that, um, the only real, I'm trying to think, well, the worst thing it, it does, it, 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 it's definitely part of the reason I've been divorced three times because intimacy is foreign to me. You know, just like, but right now I feel comfortable here talking with you guys. Maybe even 10 years ago, I wouldn't have felt this, this comfortable in social situation. That's part of it. As far as triggers, I don't know. I always, I remember 4th of July, Saratoga Springs, the fireworks start going off. I'm hiding. Now I'm having flashbacks. I'm not in Vietnam. I know right where I am, but I'm my, my brain is in Vietnam. It's rockets. It's whatever. And it's embarrassing. Mainly it's embarrassing. You know, people are going to look at you and people see me do this. Uh, and guess what? It died away. And I really thought that I was getting better until my fifties. And it, it, it wasn't that it certainly was no burden when I was drinking because that was my, that was my burden was the alcoholism. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, loud noises, of course, all that stuff is, is normal. Uh, but the survival guilt would have killed me. I don't have survival guilt anymore. It was not my time to die. You know, now February 22nd, the day they died is also, uh, the same day I met my wife and I wasn't going to meet her because it was February 22nd. Yeah. And it, because of circumstances, 
it was either that or I wasn't going to get to see this girl I was falling in love with for weeks and two weeks. And, and so now that day is the day that I think Frank and LT, they're the only two I was really, you know, close to on my track. Uh, uh, they're happy for me. They're happy for me. And I'm, when I get to heaven, I believe I'm that they're going to give me a hug and that I'll, and so I, I'm getting very forgetful, but for some reason, uh, there's a thing called hyper vigilance for up until two years ago, I always close my blinds at night. Why? Because if my blinds are open in my mind and not literally, but subconsciously, there's a sniper out there. And so I'm going to close my blinds. I don't have to think about the Cedar city sniper, right? <laughs> Even though I know that logically there's not that well, it has only been a year, maybe two years, right? Uh, my blinds are open at night. It doesn't bother me. But somehow noises, uh, I, I showed you that thing. I go around with this thing. It's gotten, I don't know what, last six months. It's gotten so bad when, when Debbie would unload the dishwasher, a uh, dish would clink and I would just go like I just did and my pulse would pound. And it, and it was the same. Imagine if somebody right over there fired an M16 into this room. Same reaction, even though I can see it. Sometimes I could even do it myself. And it was like driving me nuts. How do I fix this? What do I do? And, and, and uh, ironic, I haven't been to a psychiatrist uh, in, I think, about five years. I take a certain medication for post-traumatic stress that I want to check in since I've been on it for 25 years now. But I also <laughs> mainly want to check about this. You know, is there anything? Is there any new treatment? for? Because there's different EMDR, all these different treatments. And so, uh, but the trigger is a sound. Adam has a laugh. It's not his, it's not the loudness of it. It's a, just like Deborah Lee claps her hand. Yep. And there's a, it's a, I mean, it is loudness sometimes, but a dish clanking is not loud. It's actually a frequency. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. It makes me jump. It makes me so, I live with headphones. I have a hat. I live with them. And I go to church. I have a little sign. I can hear you. Please don't think I'm rude. That's, and that's my biggest problem now is please don't think I'm rude. I just have to protect my ears. When I came in here, I have these, right? And right, these uh, earbuds that you're wearing. Yeah, right? I, wear, I, I go between these. Sometimes I have to wear them both. I wore these in the contest that we had. Yeah, first I remember time, that. First time ever because I was – So was, you're finding you're, I, that, that although those challenges still persist through life, yeah. that there's ways to – to live with and and to cope with and grow and 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 adapt to. I'm not a big fan of psychologists, but I went to mine yesterday. I see them on an intermittent basis. Sometimes I get depressed, and usually by the time I get go over to see Scott, I'm feeling great again. But he, every time I go there, he gives me a valuable insight, a very valuable insight. So go to see a psychologist and and certainly talk to them. They're good ones and they're bad ones. Um, uh, right now, I think I, I said this before we started talking. What I go through with this, Paul had a thorn in his side. He asked the Lord to take it away and he said, my grace is sufficient. If I have this for the rest of my life, I feel that I, I, I have this line I wrote that there's times I feel like I'm in a deluge, I'm outside without an umbrella in a deluge of God's grace. And life is 71 years old. I wake up in pain every day. It wears off. I drink more coffee than I should. 
Life is hard at 71. You know, it's up. If I didn't have stairs, I'd probably be dead. I got stents in my heart. My wife has, I'm diabetic, all these things of high blood pressure. But you know what? I am, I just lost, uh, I, I was 250 pounds for a long, but when I first came here, did Adam might even remember, I was like 220 was my normal weight. I was in Mexico for five months, uh, a couple of years ago. And went through some medicine. Cry. I I lost. I'm 173 pounds. I haven't weighed this since my 20s. I go in to get my blood pressure check. 190 over 90 for ages. 30. 120 over 80. I have the blood pressure of a teenager. Yes, I do take <laughs> medication. But God is making it very clear to me that. Uh, Okay, Rick, you've been retired for what is it? 25 years now. You haven't done a whole lot. And I'm writing. I'm doing this. But it's like. I've given you these, this, I think of talent as responsibility and I want you to work. And so I have this wonderful health, but it's, uh, I've already lost. This is another thing. And my dad died of Alzheimer's at 74. He got Alzheimer's at 68. I'm 71. I'm getting very forgetful. Is it Alzheimer's? I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> you know, you, I forget something and it's like, oh, I'm talking to an old guy. So what, you know, but, um, <clears throat> Yeah, it. What was the? Just remind me the question. I'll finish up. Oh, just run. about uh, living with those circumstances oh, yeah, and, and finding ways to adapt and to, to continue forward. What's there's a wonderful verse in the Bible. Considerate, considerate all grace. Is it Timothy? I, I'm not. Uh, when when you go through tribulation, we all know what tribulation, right? It's a difficult time. We don't relish tribulation but the bible says consider it all grace and i'm literally to that point now okay i'm depressed right i am having anxiety anxiety is different than depression anxiety is fear and i'm on my knees quick i don't like it i suffer it but i find if i pray it almost instantly becomes manageable whatever it is so what i say is i've literally experienced I'm having a bad something, a bad day. We all have them and something's going wrong. And I will literally for a moment just feel the grace. I hate to use this metaphor. It's a horrible metaphor to use. But when you're a drug addict, as soon as you have a bag of dope, once it's in your pocket, you start feeling good. Okay, I, I admit it's a bad metaphor, but the point I'm trying to <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is unlike that that metaphor just knowing that grace will always be there is my coping mechanism is my coping that never i mean do do is this cross i bear get heavy sometimes yeah does it am i sometimes afraid that i might die tomorrow yeah but not really you know um uh, uh you know god has a sense of humor he may keep me keep me alive for another 15 years i don't know but uh gratitude in AA, we say uh, you can't drink when you have gratitude. And I, that was absolutely true. How can you drink if you're gratitude? And uh, I find it so easy to have gratitude because I know that my Lord and Savior is never going to desert me. I know there's never a time, whether you call it the Holy Spirit or Jesus or my Father in heaven, when I pray, I'm heard. You know, maybe I'm on hold. I don't know, but my prayers are heard. And I know that more than anything, that God loves me. So he's not going, this is so cliche, but it's so profoundly true. He won't give me more than I can handle. And it may be a lot. Sometimes I've thought, God, you really think I can handle this much? But, uh, but I know he won't. I know that uh, if I fall and break my leg, it's, 
what, okay, God, what's next? What's next? You know, what can I do? And mostly, and, and I'll tell you, I'll end with this. One of the, if you can, one of the good things about my experience with war, I got a roof over my head. I'm warm. I got food. Everything else is gravy because I lived at a time where I was surrounded by people that wanted to kill me and were doing their very best to do that very thing. So uh, we take such obvious things for granted. But I remember uh, Adam one time recently did a speech. I can't remember exactly, but it was something about this. Just you have a roof over your head. You know, you've got food. You've got children that love you. Um, it's just easy to find gratitude if, if you just if you look. <laughs> yeah. No, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. I, go ahead. Oh. <laughs> that, was, I, that was just a wonderful answer to my question. Yeah, that was great. All right, got one last question for you. What now? Right, we've we've got a lot of great information. We've we've learned from your experience. It's been wonderful tonight. What is the one thing you'd want to have us take away from your experience? Whether that's as a spouse of someone with PTS, whether that's as a person who may experience that or are trying to cope with it, whether that's someone who's struggling with alcoholism or other drugs or any other tribulation or challenge in our life what's the one thing to take away what could someone take and say like i can learn this i can do this this is my next step to move in the right direction i'm not going to apologize but i can't help myself i'm thinking of two verses in like i said i'm not going to apologize for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life and the other one is on the bottom of all my emails and i don't even know if it's relevant but you tell me it's uh trust me i'm not big on memory verse i, I know how to get there but ephesians <laughs> One, uh, Ephesians 5, 1 and, and 2, I think it is. It says, be, Im- be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. Walk in love. That's, if I'm doing that, if in my book, I said everything, I love simplicity and everything that I read about Everything always comes back to what are the two most important commandments? Love God, love your neighbor. And you can't love your neighbor until you love God. And if if I didn't even have a Bible, I'm grateful I do, but if that's all I had and I followed my life, I want to love God, I'm going to love my neighbor, how do I do that? And it's not easy, you know. What if your neighbor's a complete jerk? that has different political views. Imagine that, (laughs) you know, how do you love them? How do they, and that's what I'd leave you with because if you're under that umbrella, you're not only going to be okay, you're probably going to be happy. You're going to be at peace. You're going to be a good father. You're going to make mistakes like we all do. Maybe you're going to struggle desperately. Like I, I don't know for Kent, but I know, uh, me and Adam, that applies to us. We have struggled desperately in our life and we're smiling. We're smiling today. Right. Oh man. I, I have uh, only 4,000 more questions. Uh, <laughs> so 
but I'm not going to hold you hostage here because we could just go at this forever. This is wonderful. You've taught us so much this evening. Thank you so much for this. Um, I guess in summary, uh, thank you so much for sharing some of that. Again, there's a few things that you've written. You said going to Helen A. Handbasket. Um, uh, th- so if you want to hear more about Rick's story, that's one place you can look at it. Where, where else can they find more it's, information that you teach? Uh, uh, it's on uh, Amazon. If you just type in Rick Adair, uh, R-I-C-K-A-D-A-I-R, you might, you might get the famous baseball player, Rick Adair. But the name of my book, I have a pseudonym that's a joke. Pseudonym is a fake name. My name's on the book, but the name of the book is going to, the pseudonym is, pay attention, going to Helen a handbasket. I've had people tell me they went to the internet. They couldn't figure out what that meant. Going to hell in a handbasket. Okay. My, uh, I had a very dear friend of mine who used to say that 30 years ago. World's going to hell in a handbasket. And uh, I, I want to show people that this is a serious topic. It's, I don't believe in eternal hell, and I have evidence to that. But I also wanted to, to show that uh, I want to have fun and that my book is, a, is it's also a memoir. And Part of my survival I never mention uh, is my sense of humor. Uh, I, I can't be depressed if I'm laughing. And, and my friend Adam will attest to it. I love to laugh. I love when other people laugh. When I, It saved my life in AA. When I went to AA and I thought, if this is all life is, is people with their head in their hand, I'm so happy I could, you know, whatever. I thought, I can't get sober. And, and uh, I found... Uh, it just there's so much funny in life if you're willing to if you're willing to see it. So if you want to get get the book, go to Amazon, type in just going to and Rick Adair, you'll probably find it. And uh, and my other book is, is staying sober in AA when surrounded by drunks. I'm working on the third edition, but you can still get the ebook if you're interested. And uh, and uh, and I'll be be speaking at a Toastmaster club near you. <laughs> That is wonderful. Thank you so much, Rick. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And and thanks for sharing so much with us. We really appreciated this. And we'll make sure that we have some information out so people can check into that. Oh, terrific. Just want to remind everyone listening, thank you for joining us. Hopefully today is as, as inspiring as all the episodes we've been doing. We really want to make a difference in your life and help you have more bright information, positive information in a world that is not always so bright and positive because there is good out there. In fact, there's great out there and it's our choice to see it and to share it and to listen to it. And so hope you've enjoyed this today. Thank you as always for joining us and we hope you have a great night. Thank you. Bless you both. Thank you.